Well, as we study this uh, passage in 1 Peter and go through this uh, section of Scripture, Peter says in his book that hard times have come and are coming. He says in chapter 1 that they're buffeted about by various trials. He says in chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, you know, you, the, the, the people around you live in riotous, unbridled, passionate, abusive living. He says, but you people have been called to a different standard. And he says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of dissipation or debauchery, and they malign your character. They speak ill of you. Chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in the midst of all this, the next paragraph, Peter says, therefore, or so, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort them. He says, I want, he says shepherd the, the flock of God that is among you willingly, not begrudgingly. Do it with joy, not for financial or shameful gain. And don't lord it over them or domineer people. Be, be pace setters or examples to them. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. But, but please understand this as he addresses the younger people in this next sentence and the church at large in the next sentence, that the chief issue upon which we must be crystal clear is to glory in the wonder of Christ. That's why Peter starts off by saying this, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a fellow elder. He says, I'm, I'm I am called of God. I, I am a man who has partaken of, of the beauty of Christ. I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, do not ever forget the glory and the grandeur of Christ. God gave us the church. What did God do to help us stand strong in trials? in tribulation, in hard times. God gave us the church. He gave us godly men to watch over us, godly people to walk with us. He gave us one another. But, but in the context of that, the primary issue must always be, behold the glory and the grandeur and the goodness of Christ. In chapter 1, he labors to, to show the glory of Christ. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never, ever fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Behold the glory of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Behold the glory and the wonder of the cross. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ 
a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Behold the wonder of Christ. Behold his glory. That's, that's the primary issue we must keep before us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have life everlasting. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it's nothing you have done. It is the gift of God. It's not works, so that no man could ever boast. Martin Luther, I love Luther, he was, uh, he wrote this. He said that the gate of paradise was thrown open to me in the 16th century. He said, because I saw that God's righteousness is the righteousness with which God clothes us by making us righteous. Let me explain that. All of his life, Luther had been taught, even as a monk in the Augustinian order, he said, all my life I was taught that I worked hard to merit the favor of God. And then he said, I started reading the scriptures, and I studied Romans 1 that says, for the just shall live by faith. And he said, I started reading Augustine, and I discovered that, that God's righteousness is the righteousness with which he clothes us by making us righteous through the work of Christ on the cross for me. It's nothing I can do or have done. It is simply what Jesus has done for me. And he says, when that happened, the gates of paradise were thrown open for me. This man who had almost starved himself to death through fasting to show his penitence over his sin, this man who would beat his body to show that he was penitent over his sin, saw that it's not my merits of what I do, it's what Christ has done. That is the gospel. And that's what we must always major in. I was reading an Old Testament commentary this week, and the writer just stopped and he said this, have we lost the goosebumps on our soul over our salvation? Remember when you were first converted, if you're a believer, and you would sing some of these hymns, and it would be, you'd go, wow. And I pray, don't lose the goosebumps. There was an elder I was praying with this week, and he prayed this, and I just wrote it down. And I said, Lord, may you keep the fires burning within us. And I thought of 2 Timothy 1, 6, where Paul says to Timothy, fan into a flame the gift of God that you've been given. Fan it into a flame. Don't lose the goosebumps. And when we talk about God giving us the church and how to stand strong, we, we, we major on the very first thing Peter says. He says, I am just a fellow elder. I am an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, and I'm going to partake in the glory that's coming. Isaac Watts got it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And so with that as a backdrop, Peter says now, he says, likewise, which is a transition statement, so he says, so I, 
exhort the fellow elders. He makes that statement, and he says, likewise, and he gives a, a brief, pithy statement. Likewise, I, I, I plead with the younger, those who are younger, to submit themselves to the elders. Boom. Just say, well, why the younger? Well, if you're old, you know why the younger. When you're young, you're more impulsive, you make more rash decisions, you, you do things like that, and it's just sometimes, it's very important for younger people to sit back and say, how can I learn? It's important to recover the Titus II pattern of older women teach younger women, older men teach younger men, help them to think and not make the same mistakes you made, the younger, the younger, it's glorious to be young. But it's always good to be in tandem with people who've gone where you're going. Younger parents, get together with older parents. You will survive the terrible twos, the terrible threes, the fortuitous fours, you know, the systematic fives, whatever you want to call them. You will survive them. You'll survive the white water years of people called teenage years. You will survive it. Baby boomers were called the me generation. Baby Boomer was born 1946 and 1964. Time Magazine recently had a cover story on the millennials. The millennials being people born from 1980 to the year 2000, the children of baby boomers. And the article was interesting. It said that if the baby boomers were the me generation, the millennials, there are 80 million millennials in America, the millennials are the me, me, me generation. He talked about the good things about the millennials. He said they are given to relationship. They are tech savvy. They're ready to transition and, and, and they're flexible. Then he talked about some other things. He said, I rise a 41-year-old, he said. He said that the, the uh, narcissistic disorder, narcissistic women, narcissistic personality disorder is three times higher among millennials than those age 65 and above. Now, I don't, I'm not familiar with narcissistic personality disorder, but just looking at the words, it's not good. <laughs> because they use the word narcissistic and disorder. He said that the millennials have been taught that they are the best around. They receive, every time they turn around, they were thrust a trophy or a ribbon and their parents wrote around saying my child is a child of the year at my school and so millennials believe they deserve a promotion every other year even if they get bad job reviews and he went on and talked about young people now remember this quote our youth now love luxury they have bad manners contempt for authority they show disrespect for their elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. Who said that? Your middle school teacher? Your mama? Or Plato? Plato. So, you know. Then I thought about older people. Older people. Aristotle wrote about older people and somebody else did too i think i just gave away my answer he said older people are unbending and cynical they've experienced a lot therefore they believe in nothing <laughs> that's what aristotle said the elderly elderly live by memory rather than by hope 
They have a lot of experience. They are sure about nothing and underdo everything. They are small-minded because they have been humbled by life. They are cynical and distrustful and neither love warmly nor hate bitterly. <laughs> Who said that? Your daughter, your physician, or Aristotle? Answers Aristotle, who came a few years after Plato. Uh, there's a man in this church I respect very much, and whenever we've discussed making a change, he will say something like this, that's not the way we did it in the thrilling days of yesteryear. And he says that tongue-in-cheek because he knows that we're resistant to change. But he says here, likewise, you that are younger, clothe yourselves with humility or, or be subject to the elders. Be subject means to come under the authority of the elders, those who teach and those who lead. Their spiritual authority their doctrinal insight come under their, the authority of the church. In Hebrews 13, it uses the same concept. It says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In, in the church, submit, come under the authority of, the oversight of, of your leaders. And there's, there's two options here. You, you see right here, let, let, let them do this with joy or with groaning. Joy or groaning. Two options. I tell people frequently as I get older and they ask about ministry, I say the, the, the best thing about ministry are people. When they're going for it, and, and, and they're, they, they want to be used of God, and they're in the Word, and they're prayerful, and they're, it's just glorious. The worst thing about ministry are people. You know, many nights, I wake up, and the first thing that hits me is, what is going on in this family? Why are they doing that? Went to a senior banquet Friday night, wonderful group of seniors. And just prayed through the list and thought about them. And I know, I've known many of them for years. And I've said, I, 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 as I pray through the list, many of these are going to go into life and they're going to represent Christ in their university and then in the marketplace and their calling. And they're going to live with dignity and they're going to hold the banner. They're going to take the baton that's being passed on to them. But there are a number of people on this list who will walk away. They'll walk away. So just abandon what they've been taught. And it breaks your heart. Joy or groaning. He says, likewise, you that are younger, listen, submit to the teachings. Submit to it. And then he gives this general exhortation, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due season he may exalt you. 
Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So, so this general exhortation is clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And, and the term here for, for clothe yourselves does not mean make it an accessory on your wardrobe. It means buckle it around your waist, fix it on your person. Be a person of known humility. Humility is not an, an, an option. It's not like a, a woman has been dressed very nicely, her hair is coiffured, manicured, whatever she does, and, and, and she's going out and she says, well, maybe this scarf will accentuate my wardrobe. It's an accessory. That's not what he says here. He says it is central. It is your clothing. It's not like a football player going to a football game and, and picking up a, a, a pad for his elbow from the equipment manager thinking, well, I may be falling on my elbow. No, it's not an accessory. Humility is your helmet and your shoulder pads. Humility is a, a, a chief virtue in the Christian. It's very interesting. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. You bind it upon you. I think about did this shot. There's a shot. You, I don't know if you can see. There's, this is someone coming down from a rock, for, in rock formation in Moab, Utah. There's a, there's a speck there. Let me give you a better shot would be this. It's a 300-foot drop. That's my daughter-in-law. My son has already gone down and was taking a photograph. And you're thinking, you're thinking, Really, are they crazy? And the answer is yes. That's unbelievable. And I asked, I said, Zach, what, 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 how did you get the harness and tie? Well, Dad, we used a knot that I've learned in my rappelling called the European Death Knot. I said, the European Death Knot? And I looked it up. That's what it's called. I wish they called it the Shalom Life Giving Harness or something. I'm going to go down 300 feet in the middle of nowhere. With, in a harness with the European death knot. Let me tell you something. That harness was fastened to her. And that European death knot was tied with, with rope that had been used only a few times. And that's what Paul, excuse me, Peter's saying here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Three reasons. Number one, because God opposes the proud. That's enough. God opposes the proud. Number two, he lavishes his grace or gives grace to the humble. He, he lavishes, he gives his grace. One writer says that God's face is attracted by humility. Lavishes grace. Thirdly, as you humble yourself before the Lord in due season, the Lord will exalt you. Then he says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. See, we, we walk before the God who is and the God who does good and the God who is sovereign king and Abba Father. And, and so we say, Lord, this is in your... Well, one of the most freeing verses, if you're a justice person, some of us are justice-oriented. One of the most freeing verses for you to meditate on is Romans 12, 18, and following, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You step away and you say, you know, I don't have to seek revenge. I don't have to be right. God will deal with them. I'm called to pray and care for people. I'll never forget, and I've used this before, a conversation I had 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, with a woman, a very wealthy woman, well-dressed, but her body was racked with bitterness. She was in her 70s. And after we had a dinner party, spent as a pastor, and so, you know, when, sometimes when you're a pastor, people feel they can just dump on you. And so she just, and she said, my husband left me and ran off with his secretary. And she just spoke with such vitriol. I thought, bless your heart. You're walking through a deep valley. I am so sorry for you. I said, it must have happened very, I said, when did it happen? She said, 30 years ago. And I thought, oh man. Then I got to know her family and bitterness and anger and bitterness and anger had been poured into their laps to the third generation. And I thought, oh, if only, if only we could get hold of this verse. God is God, and he will repay. Our job is to be humble, and in the proper time, God will exalt. God will lift us up. God will be God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, and in his time, he will exalt you by his mighty hand. And it happens as we stand at the foot of the cross. Carl Henry said it's very difficult to stand at the foot of the cross and be proud. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. I, I think it's one of the best things he wrote in Mere Christianity. Two paragraphs. Let me read him. He says, he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. This is in your worship guide. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Think about that. You know, the unchastity, a flea bite compared to pride. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. In God, you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit to themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks that they are better than ordinary people. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted on not by God, but by the devil. 
The real test is being in the presence of God or in being in the presence of God is that you either forget all about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. (laughs) It begins when we stand at the foot of the cross. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays an incredible prayer for the church, and he closes the prayer by saying in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, I appeal to you, a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. See, I, I appeal to you to be humble and gentle. Why? You see the glory of Christ. You see the, the wonder of the cross. Jesus says in Luke 17, after we've said and done all that we can say and all that we can do, we can only lift up our eyes and say, we are still unworthy servants. Charles Wesley got it when he said, uh, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us find our full salvation found only in thee. And he ends that by saying this, till we cast our crowns before you on the day of judgment, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I, said, I want that. I want to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And so this whole issue of, of, of humility, I want to give you something to think through. It's an acrostic. I know it's kind of peril, but it's an acrostic. It's, it's the acrostic lock. You know, a couple of years ago, Meryl Streep was in a movie where she portrayed Margaret Thatcher. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I remember reading the editorial and saying, from this point forward, forget voting for the Academy Awards Best Actress. She is a lock. It was such a superb performance, it was a lock. Or if you're watching an athletic contest and a team is playing in a conference championship to get to a BCS Bowl, and when they win, they say they are a lock. It's, it's, they're there. So I I just want to say, how do you walk in humility? L-O-C-K. Okay, take it for what it's worth. Okay, first of all, L is for labor. Labor to know the greatness of Christ as you listen to Scripture. Labor to know the gospel. Know the gospel. Preach the gospel. Love the gospel. Glory in the goodness of Christ. O is for others. Are there others in your life who can speak to you about the things of God or or just speak correction? We need people in our lives. How does the church stand strong? Peter says, so I exhort the elders as a fellow elder. God gives us a church. Are there people in your life that speak to you, that know you? There's a great balance in 1 John. It says if, if we deny that we sin, we make him out to be a liar. And then the other extreme is, if, gloriously, is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We need people in our lives who say, listen, what's going on? I say, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not doing well. Why? Well, I, I remember what I did seven months ago. And they say to you, you confess that, 
You tried to make restitution. You tried to make it right. You've walked in repentance. You're under the authority of Christ now. Do not let the devil beat you down with what happened a few months ago or a few years ago or when you were a teenager. You need friends to say, get out of shantytown and stand on the pinnacle of grace. Conversely, you need friends in your life who say, how are you doing? What's going on? He said, I've kind of seen some things going on. I said, well, you know, I've, uh, the last few years I've found myself drinking every night. And, and, and doing more so on the weekend. And, and I know from my wife and other people say that it's, it's weighing me down and I need to quit. He says, well, this friend says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to come to your house right now and we're going to have a booze party. We're going to take all your alcohol and we're going to dump it down the commode. And we're going to go sober. And I'm going to walk with you. And your friend says, well, you know, it's not that serious. And they say, you're not serious about repentance. As your friend, you're not serious. You're playing games with yourself. See? The, the balance. You need others in your life. Your friend says to you, you know, I, gossip and speaking ill of people is a cancer, and I'm struggling with that. So, okay, I'll pray for you. And then two weeks later, you're with that person. They start speaking ill. You pull them aside. That's a cancer. Well, I didn't. Uh, not really. He says, you're not serious about repentance. You need others in your life. C, am I correctable? Am I approachable? Ask your kids. Ask your spouse. Are you correctable? Humble people are correctable. Because people that really know Jesus know that we stand by grace. People that, I mean, don't, well, don't, don't ever say, I could never do that. Don't, don't say that. Apart from God's grace, there's a lot we could do. There's a lot we could do. Libra's filled with men who at the wrong place, at the wrong time, had the ability to do something that was horrific. Galatians 6 says, if anyone is trapped in any sin, you who are spiritual, go and restore him with a spirit of gentleness. But watch yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I love that verse. You just watch yourself. Lest you too be tempted. Because you live at the same zip code they live at. It's Grace Boulevard. And so you want to be corrected. You, you realize that the, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, it's like going the Coastal Carolina Fair into the mirror house. You don't get, we, we don't get true understanding. We, some do more than others, but we, you know, come on. James says this. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, I I want to be correctable, and I want others in my life because I can be deceived. And K is walk in knowledge. 
John Calvin, one great comment when he starts the Institutes, he says, it is, it is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Know God, know yourself. I've been here 31 years, and I have walked among a people who are humble. And I thank you for that. I've walked among the people who've labored to know Christ. I've walked among many people who say, I need others in my life who are correctable, who walk in knowledge. I pray I'm that way. I, I, I want to be that way because God opposes the proud. Wow. And he lavishes empowering grace on the humble. And in due season, he exalts you as you walk before him. He comforts you.